There's a verse at the end of the Old Testament that records people asking, where is the God of mercy? Where is the God of mercy? It's a question people might ask as they see children scarred by war in Syria. But it's also describing the attitude many people have in life. Where is God? If there is a God, well, maybe there's a God who who began this world, but he doesn't get involved. He's distant. He might have started the whole thing, maybe even end the whole thing. But he's distant at the moment. I can live life my own way, and God just doesn't get involved. It's the attitude summarised by those adverts there were on the side of London buses a few years ago. There's probably no God, so stop worrying and enjoy your life. It wasn't definite, there's no God, but if there is, well, you know, it's not that relevant. Let's just get on with things. Well, today we've got to a part of the Bible that says God is not distant. He's involved. Although sinners say, we want him off the throne, he hasn't said, okay, I'll meekly step down and leave you to it. We've got to Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 to 24. If you've got a Bible, would you turn to that? Right at the start of your Bible, Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 to 24. Page numbers and other details are on the yellow weekly sheet. Now, we've been going through Genesis 1 to 3. I can't recap all that we've done so far, but just to say it's shown that God made this world good. He designed an amazing world and he gave us humans great responsibility and great ability. But we've seen in Genesis 3 that we have proudly and self-centeredly said that's not good enough for us. God's given us so much. We've said that's not good enough for us. We want to be in charge. Not under God, but doing our own thing. And so that great design in the world and that great ability he's given us have got twisted and spoiled. And that means far from Genesis 1 to 3 being some primitive myth, it's a powerful explanation of the world around us. Because it's a world where we have amazingly designed weather systems that keep life going, but that also batter the Bahamas with hurricanes. We have amazing ability and are able to split the atom and then use it to destroy whole cities and kill people. We have knees that are complex joints that need all parts in place and couldn't have come about bit by bit evolving over time. But as some of you know full well, they get arthritis and get achy and worn out. So Genesis 1 to 3 isn't some fairy tale, it's, it's an explanation of, it's the true explanation of the world as we know it today. Amazingly designed, yet twisted and spoilt. And we've got to the part in Genesis 3 where mankind says, God, we don't want you. What will God do about that? Will he say, okay, I'll get down from the throne and just leave you to it. Has he abandoned us to just do our own thing? Well, let's find out now from verses 8 to 24. This is going to be an overview of those verses, and I'm hoping we'll come back to some details within them in the next few weeks. But for now, from verses 8 to 24, what does God do about sinners? And the first thing we're told is he pursues them. 
This is verses 8 to 13. God pursues sinners. Here are the first two people, Adam and Eve, and they've said, we'll do our own thing. We won't have God telling us what to do. We want independence from God. And straight away we find a reaction from God. Verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? They're hiding and he comes looking for them. Now we tend to think, most people think the other way round. God is hiding from us. He's really difficult to find and we're looking for him. Maybe through Christianity, maybe through Islam, maybe through Hinduism, maybe through your own custom made spirituality, we're looking for him. But the Bible says, no, he's not hiding. He's near. He's even pursuing us, looking for us. And we're hiding. How do we hide from God? Well, there's all sorts of ways. You can use religion or you can use things quite different from religion. We hide from God by filling our lives with distractions so we don't have to think about him. Fill it with getting successful, getting money, enjoying entertainment. Nothing wrong with any of those, but we fill our lives with them so we can forget about him. We've got to have a screen to look at, something to listen to all the time so that we don't stop and think about there's actually an emptiness without him. There's a need for him. That's a sort of hiding from God. It's the sort of hiding from God like the child. Have you seen children who hide by covering their eyes and they can't see you? So they think somehow you can't see them. It's that sort of hiding from God. We hide from God through religion. I'll cover up what I'm like with a a layer of religious activity. I'll hide my real character from God by fitting in with a religious group. So while people like the idea of God, if it's God as a, a mascot, God to make my life work out my way, They don't like the God who is real, who isn't under our control. You're my mascot and make my life sort out. No, he's in control and we are naked and exposed to him. God comes looking here for hiding people. And he comes treating them as responsible people. What does God do to them? What does God do with them in verses 9 to 13? If you've got a Bible, have a look at verses 9 to 13. Once God finds them, what does he do with them? Verses 9 to 13. He questions them. Verse 9, where are you? Verse 11, have you eaten? Verse 13, what is this you've done? He questions them. He treats them as responsible people. And he wants them to give an account for their actions. It's interesting with the snake representing Satan in verse 14. He doesn't question him. He just bams straight into punishment. But but with the people, with us humans, well, he treats us as responsible. He looks for us to be honest with him. Genesis 3 is starting out, introducing so much that will follow on in the Bible. and, And one of the things it's starting out and introducing is this. 
that God treats us as responsible and he wants us to be honest with him and he's so ready to respond to that honesty. So, for example, Proverbs 28 says, He who conceals his sin, hides it, will not prosper. But whoever confesses and renounces their sin will find mercy. God looks for us to be honest with him, and then he's so ready to forgive. So, verses 9 to 13, God looks for Adam and Eve to admit and take responsibility for their actions. What do they do instead? God asks some questions, straightforward questions, and he wants a straightforward answer. What do they do instead? Well, it could be put like, well, it's simple, isn't it? They blame others. They blame others. You could say it like this. Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the snake, blamed the snake, and the snake didn't have a leg to stand on. Heard that one before? Well, that's funny. I hope it's a bit funny anyway. But it's foolish, isn't it? How foolish. How foolish, because we can't hide our guilt from God and because God is so ready to forgive those who admit and turn from that sin they've been honest about. It's doubly foolish to be dishonest with God, to not be open with him. Because, well, he sees right through it. And why would you not be honest with a God who's ready to forgive? Why would we? I suspect one of the reasons is because God seems distant and we think he's not that involved. What's more important to us is the people around and what they see about us, so let's keep covering up. God comes for them, he comes treating them as responsible and he comes pursuing Adam and Eve. Now, Do you reckon that's a good or a bad thing? Does it sound good or bad that he's come pursuing Adam and Eve? There's an unusual film called Twelfth Man, and it's about a man who's dropped on the coast of Norway in World War II. Norway was occupied by Germany, Germany, and he's come. This man has come to help the Norwegian resistance. But right from the moment they land on the beach, it all goes wrong. And he ends up on the run. And he actually ends up hidden under a great big rock on the mountainside in the snow. And the Germans are coming for him, pursuing him. And the Swedes, not meaning vegetables rolling down the hill, but people from Sweden are coming for him, pursuing him. The Germans are coming to to torture him, to find out who's, who's involved in the resistance. The Swedes are coming to take him to safety across the border. Someone coming for you can feel very different. It can be good news or it can be bad news. God coming for you, God pursuing you. Is it good news? Is it bad news? Well, it's mixed news. There's mercy here as God comes for them and there's judgment here as he comes for them in Genesis 3. And again, that sets the message of the Bible. God pursuing us is mixed news. There's good news and bad news. Jesus came. Why did he say he came? To seek and save the lost. What good news. He said, I've come like a good shepherd to seek out lost sheep, ready and eager to forgive. But it also says in the Gospels, when he came, he was like a light showing up our darkness, 
showing up what we're like. So many people, instead of crying out, here I am, find me, they shrank back from him because they loved darkness rather than light. And his coming became bad news for them. Now, as I speak, the Holy Spirit is coming to you. Did you know that? As the Bible was preached, the Holy Spirit is coming to you. And he's bringing you good news. That God's ready to forgive. That God is pursuing you. But if you pull back, no, I don't want this God. No thanks, I'm fine on my own. You've just increased your guilt. Do you know, listening to preaching, you can increase your guilt. You can make yourself worse off. And then God pursuing you, well, that's bad news. What should you do instead? What should a sheep do when a, when a shepherd is looking for a lost sheep? What can a sheep that's stuck in a ditch do when the shepherd comes looking? I think basically just bleat. You heard a sheep bleat? It's a pretty pathetic noise. Bleat, find me, is sort of saying, isn't it? Come on, shepherd, find me. It bleats. What should we do when we hear God comes pursuing sinners? Well, we just bleat to him. We make that rather pathetic cry, Jesus, I'm lost and I need you. Jesus, find me, I need you. And then he's ready to pull such sheep out of the ditch and take us to himself. Genesis 3 is really setting the rest of the Bible because it says, God comes seeking sinners. He did it in Jesus He does it today, as the Gospels preached, and he'll do it right at the end of time. God will show he hasn't walked out of our lives to leave us to do our own thing, because he's coming back. Jesus is returning. And he's coming as a judge. And those who haven't welcomed God's pursuit of them now will be terrified by God's relentless, inescapable pursuit of them then. It's described in the end of the Bible like this. Revelation 6 says, they will call to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. They want to be hidden, but they won't manage to be hidden from that pursuit of Jesus the judge. But to those who know they need him, he's pursuing them then on that day to take them back to be with himself. God pursues sinners. Is it good news or bad news for you? Here in Genesis 3 we find the sinners say, we want God off the throne. But God doesn't say, okay, I'll meekly step down and leave you to it. He pursues them. And secondly, he punishes sin. What does God do about sinners? He pursues them and he punishes sin. We move here into verses 14 to 19. Verses 14 to 19. Now, there's a lot of detail here and I'm hoping we'll come back to it on a later Sunday and probably quite a few Sundays. But let's just see the the main point here is an obvious one. God comes and he punishes sin. He punishes Satan, the devil, in verses 14 and 15. He's going to get crushed. We'll come back to that later. And then in verses 16 to 19, he punishes the man and the woman. Let's see a bit more about that, because that's obviously relevant to us. What does he punish them with? Well, first of all, with trouble in this life. 
God doesn't take away all the good things he's given them. He's given them marriage and children and work and eating. And he doesn't take them away. But in those verses, you find they're going to get trouble and difficulties in all of those areas. Work and marriage and children and eating. Trouble in all of them. Don't we experience it? And then in verse 19, the good gifts are going to get taken away eventually. How? Verse 19, they're going to get taken away because we die. Everything has this hanging over it. One day we'll lose it because we die. Trouble now and death in the end. Do you believe that God does this sort of thing? Let's focus on the trouble now. On the 9th of July 1984, York Minster, which is basically a cathedral, was struck by lightning and very badly damaged. And some people at the time said, ah, this was an act of God because very recently at York Minster, they'd appointed David Jenkins, is it David? Yes, David Jenkins to be Bishop of Durham. And the man denied central truths of the Bible. So someone said, look, there's God's judgment. Other people said, no, God doesn't do that sort of thing. God doesn't do that sort of thing. What do you reckon? Was it God's judgment or is it God doesn't do that sort of thing? Now, the simple answer is we haven't got a clue, have we? We don't know. We we just don't know why God caused York Minster to be struck by lightning. We can't pretend to know. We do know from the Bible, for example, the book of Job, to be very careful about saying, that trouble has come because of this sin. The Bible says, be very careful. You usually don't know. You sometimes know, but you usually just don't know. Life is more complex than that. But I suspect the response there was at the time, God doesn't do that sort of thing, comes from thinking, oh, God's distant. He's uninvolved. You know, we believe he made the world. We might believe that he'll, he'll be involved when we die, but 9th of July 1984, is he involved? 8th of September 2019, is he involved? And does he respond to our sin here and now? Genesis 3 says, yes, he does. Be careful about simplistically saying, look at that suffering person, must be a really bad sinner. But God does respond to sin now. He does judge sin now and later. And the New Testament gives more detail on this. It calls the troubles we get now trumpets. Now, when we hear about trumpets, you might think of going to the Royal Albert Hall and hearing some classical orchestra and a lovely piece of music. But that's not how they use trumpets. They use trumpets in battle to sound the warning. So maybe we should call troubles now air raid sirens. I don't know if there's anyone here old enough to remember hearing air raid sirens in the war. Maybe you've heard them in films. It's an unpleasant noise, isn't it, an air raid siren? It's a grating sort of, disturbing sort of noise. Unpleasant, but nowhere near as unpleasant as what it says is coming. Bombs. It's unpleasant, but it's telling you there's something worse to come. Bombs. And so the New Testament says, God hasn't walked off and left us to our sins. He is involved and he brings troubles now. 
And we often ask why, and maybe that's exactly what he wants us to ask why. And the answer is, they're like air raid sirens, warning us there's worse to come. Because sin brings death, and death brings hell, and hell is forever. If you're in a war and you hear the air raid sirens, what do you do? What's the air raid siren for? It's not for general interest, it's to say, get to shelter. Get quickly to shelter. How do we shelter from God's punishment of sin? Well, that's the next section. What does God do about sinners? He pursues them, he punishes sin, but he also provides for them. Verse 20 to 24, God provides for sinners. Now I wonder, could we call Genesis 3 the worst chapter in the Bible? I don't know if you're going to have to say that sort of thing, but it's a dreadful chapter in terms of what it says is going to happen and and setting out a dreadful history for the rest of the world. But you're never far from good news in the Bible. And although Genesis 3 is basically a chapter of bad news, it's setting the scene for the Bible, which is a book of good news, and it has some hints of the good news. Let's see some of them. Verse 20. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. I hope you realise the Bible is a very carefully written book and it's striking this has purposely been put straight after verse 19 said, you're going to die. And in verse 20, Eve's going to produce life. Death will not win because Eve will produce life and there is a particular, a very special life that's going to come from Eve and it's hinted at back in verse 15. Verse 15, talking to the snake, representing the devil, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. God says to Satan, from this woman Eve, who has messed up so badly, I'm going to bring someone and he's going to crush you. He's going to defeat you. But he's going to have his heel struck in the process. A missionary I know in Zambia trod on a snake. And it was only a tiny snake. It was only a few inches long. little black snake in the grass in Zambia. And it bit her toe. Doesn't sound too bad, does it? Having your toe bitten by a snake that's only that long. But her leg swelled up so much she couldn't walk. She got rushed to hospital and it was thought her life was in danger. She survived, her leg went down, she was able to walk again. But several weeks later, it caused her a lot of pain and trouble, but she killed the snake. So who won? The snake or the missionary? Well, the missionary won because the snake's dead and she's alive. And in verse 15, we have someone defeating the snake, but in the process, being injured. He'll get injured, but he'll win. And you get to the New Testament, and it says this, When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman. Of course he was born of a woman, you think. There's no other way to be born, is there, apart from from a woman? What's it telling us? Oh, it's telling us he's this promised person. He's come from the woman, Eve. He's the promised seed. He's the offspring of the woman. And as he hung on the cross, 
Satan struck him again and again and bit all the venom he could into him again and again. But that person, Jesus, crushed, crushed all the life and all the power out of Satan as he took our guilt and he paid our punishment and he saved his people. Are you one of his people? Because it's the only way to be safe from that enemy we have. Are you trusting him? Because that's the way to shelter from God's punishment. That's the shelter God provides. The punishment falls on him. Just like bombs fall on the shelter and you're safe inside it, the punishment fell on him. And you shelter safely if you're trusting in him. God provides. He provides a shelter. Jesus defeating the devil. But God provides, there's another little hint of the gospel here. He provides a covering. What was the first thing that Adam and Eve did after their sin? What was the first thing they did back in verse 7 after they've sinned? Well, they felt naked. They felt exposed and so they tried to cover it up with a few fig leaves. And that's what we've been trying to do ever since, cover up. Cover over our sin, put on a good show, appear to be better people, but it doesn't work. They still feel ashamed in verse 7, they still feel the need to hide. All our attempts to cover up, all our attempts to seem something different from what we are, they're just like clothes are to an x-ray machine. God sees right through it all. And so God clothes them. Verse 21. Verse 21, the Lord God made garments, clothes of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. He makes them clothes. What out of? Skin. Obviously an animal skin. What's the significance of that? What would God have needed to do to make those clothes? Uh, This isn't really liked in our animal rights age. He would have had to have killed some animals. Why does he do that? Well, here again we have a little pointer to the work of Jesus. Sin brings death, but one day Jesus would come and he could take death in our place so that our sin could be covered with a proper covering. That means that we can stand with confidence before God. Again, we're being told Jesus is the shelter. Are you sheltering in him? God provides victory over Satan, covering for our sin. And then lastly, he provides, I'm not sure if this is the right way to put it, that God provides life or death. But let's put it like that, life or death. The chapter ends in verse 22 with Adam and Eve thrown out of the garden. It's a dreadful punishment. They are driven away from God and an angel is placed there to say don't come back and to enforce don't come back. They are losing the home God gave and the life God gave and the the time with God that they'd enjoyed. But even here, there is a little tiniest hint of good news. Can you see it in verse 22? Verse 22, there's a tiny hint of good news. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live 
forever. That's bad news. But there's a little bit of good news. And it's this. God won't let us live forever in rebellion against him. Because he's got something better planned. He won't let them live forever in this miserable and wrong rebelling life. He's got a better way of living forever planned for them. The question is, will they, will you insist on our way or believe God has a better way? I remember once when our children were a lot younger, uh, walking to the beach on holiday, and the children stopped off to play in a puddle, a muddy puddle. And they were allowed to play in the puddle for a while, but after a while it was time to move on. But it was a right job to persuade them there was something better ahead. We're going to the beach, and the beach is a lot better than a muddy puddle in the path. But they wanted to stick with their muddy puddle. Will we stick with our way? Life, rebelling against God, if that was to go on forever, what a nightmare. If God just let us have that forever, sin after sin after sin, dragging on forever and ever. But he's got something much better for us. Because Jesus didn't just say, I've come to give you life forever. He said, I've come to give you life as it's meant to be. Life to the full. Life reconciled with God. And that forever. My children didn't want to give up the puddle to get to the beach. Will you give up your way to get God's better way? Will you give up life trying to be independent of God for life coming under God's care? And that forever. God hasn't got off the throne. He still cares for his people. And even here in Genesis 3, he's providing for sinners. What does God do about sinners? That's how I started all of this. What does God do about sinners? He pursues them. He punishes sin. But there's a way to be sheltered from that punishment because he provides even for sinners. The one thing he won't do is leave you alone. Did you know that? I hope everyone here has faced up to that. There is one thing God will not do, which is just leave you to it. You can't just ignore him and hope he'll go away. You can't just be like a child and cover your eyes from him and presume he doesn't see you. You might not believe in him, but that doesn't make him go away. You might demand that you be in control, but that doesn't make him get off the throne. He pursues sinners, he punishes sin, but he provides a shelter. It's good news in the end. So are you sheltering? Have you come safely within the shelter? Are you trusting in Jesus?